September 13th, 2023. Let's continue talking about Harambam's words in Morei Nebuchim. What we've done over the course of many classes is take selective passages and try to weave together a general vision and uh, direction that uh, Harambam has been leading us in throughout many of his different conversations. What I'd like to this evening do uh, together with you is take a different direction. And the reason I want to do so is because we're in the holiday season for all intents and purposes. We're approaching Rosh Hashanah, then we'll have Kippur, and then we'll have Sukkot, of course. And so uh, perhaps it's the most opportune time to focus a little bit on Harambam's words in Helek Gimal, Perik Mem Gimal, and specifically tonight to talk about Rosh Hashanah, through the eyes of Harambam in Moreh Nebuchim. To the best of my knowledge, this is the reference in the Moreh to Rosh Hashanah, here in the middle of Perik and Hailek Gimal, Perik Mem Gimal. So let's read the words, uh, try to uh, appreciate what they say, maybe ask a question or two, and then develop a, a, a direction with regards to an explanation. What I'd like to do by means of discussing it is to use Harambam. What I mean by use Harambam is I want to read as well afterwards from Chelek Aleph, Perek Mem Dalet, and Perek Mem He. We'll introduce those when we get there, but I'm warning you already, the objective in reading Perek Mem Dalet and Perek Mem He from Chelek Aleph is not so much to get his direction and his descriptions, it's to use, well, his side point or what he does in development uh, to build a broader picture. Well, you'll understand what I mean in a few moments. Uh, Harambam here in Chayla Gimal, Perek Mem Gimal, is dealing with the holidays. Now, at the end of Chayla Gimal, more than the end, he talks about Ta'ame HaMitzvot. That might be, for many, the most recognizable part of the Moreh, where he talks about the reasonings and philosophies that underlie the uh, mitzvot. And in this particular chapter, he's talking about holidays. Uh, he refers to his Sefer Zimanim in, in Mishneh Torah. And he's giving you brief snippets of the underlying theme and uh, message of each one of the holidays. And so if you here, take a look at the second paragraph on the page. It says, Kimochen Rosh Hashanah, Yom Echad. Of course, that's a shocking line. Rosh Hashanah is not just one day, it's two days. The Gemara makes that clear. The footnote over here already says, Harambam's objective in the Moreh, as we have discovered more than once, is to explain Peshat in Torah Shbikhtav. It's true, we celebrate as part of our tradition, Torah Shba'alpeh, two days of Rosh Hashanah. There's debates about whether at times and in circumstances that could or would be different. But ultimately speaking, if you just read from the Torah, the Torah talks about uh, a day. It doesn't refer to two days. So, Kemochen Rosh Yom Echad, just a parenthetical point. Shekenu Yom Teshubah veheirat ha'anashim meheseh hada'at shelahem. Says Harambam, what's Rosh Hashanah about? It's a day of repentance, Teshubah. Hearata anashim, it's the awakening of people, from their, I guess the best way to translate is distractions. Uh, it's the way in which we awaken ourselves to reality and away from distractions. Now, that's clearly, I, I think I speak somewhat. Uh, uh, confidently, that's not found in the simple text of Torah Shbikhtav. Uh, the Torah doesn't describe Yom of Rosh Hashanah as a day of, of Teshubah, per se. He's going to tell us where he gleans that from in a moment, but that's already significant. Harambam's description, much the same as many of his descriptions here. For example, Shavuot, he describes as the day on which we receive the Torah. You won't find that as the description in the Torah 
to why we commemorate Aseret. The Torah never says that directly in tandem. So, so too over here, he's tapping into a rabbinic tradition in explaining the text. We'd want to see where he's finding that. He tells us in the next sentence, Lachen tokim bo bishofar. This is for that reason that we sound the shofar. For what reason? Because it's a day of Teshubah. Right. So, the reason we sound the shofar is because the Torah says, Yom Lachem. Says Harambam, what does that mean? Why is it a day of trumpeting? Why is it a day of those sounds? Because of the Tishubah. That's where he finds the, the glimpse in the Torah as to the nature of the day. Says Harambam, as we explained in our book, Mishneh Torah. Of course, Mishneh Torah of Harambam is his halacha code. What's that? We, he means himself. It's the royal we. Um, so that's what he wrote. Uh, we'll, we'll read what he wrote in Mishneh Torah in a moment. But that's what he, he, the fact that he referred to himself, he's cross-referenced himself, tells us we really need to check that. I mean, I think we always need to check when he cross-references anything, but certainly if he's cross-referencing his own words. Okay, so again, that's the description. Now, I, I do have a question. Of course, we'll have to look at Mishneh Torah. Maybe he'll help us with that. How is shofar in any way, shape, or form, this is really the question that I'd like to address, a instigation, a way of awakening us to Teshubah? In what way? Harambam's, so to speak, saying, at least in my reading of it, open up to the Torah, it describes Rosh Hashanah first as Zichron Teruah and then Yom Teruah, today of sounding, says Harambam, seems to be what he's telling us, point taken, Torah. What's the point? It's a day of Teshubah. Where do you see that? I mean, why is it any more a day of Teshubah than if I was taking the Arba'at Aminim? Maybe that's a day of Teshubah. Where do you see, what is it about the Shofar that for Harambam, that triggers him and in turn should trigger us? This is a day of repentance and introspection. Is it possibly, I don't know, you blow the Shofar when you're going to war, so it scares the kid, wakes him up. I don't know. Interesting. So, Abi suggests, when we went to war, we were v'hareotem v'hasoserot, Maybe it's along the same line. It happens to be traditionally, although the Torah is never explicit, this is the Hachamim, traditionally, um, Shofar is very different than Hasoserot. Hasoserot was not a Shofar, but the Torah never tells us that a Shofar is what you sound on Rosh Hashanah. The, shofar, the Torah just says, Teruah. Hasoserot was made differently. They had specific Hasoserot trumpets, which were maybe made out of uh, Zahav, made out of gold. It wasn't a ram's horn. It wasn't a ram's horn, per se. How did the Hachamim derive that on Rosh Hashanah you do a ram's horn? That's an elaborate dirasha. They have a dirasha in which they derive it from comparing it to um, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur every 50 years on Yovel. The Torah says that you're going to sound Shofar Teruah. Well, you see the word Teruah over there. You see the Teruah by Rosh Hashanah. Shofar Teruah must be identical to tell you. Same way that one's Teruah, so too this one is. Keep in mind, Hasos Erot is Hare Otemba Hasos Erot as well. You have that. Oh, but that's the Darash of the Chachamim. Fascinating. So, so the suggestion in turn of Abi is, if it's making me think about war, it's kind of making me scared. In other words, if you hear the Hasos, if you hear the Hasos Erot, and in turn, if you hear the Shofar, maybe that inspires you uh, to being scared, and in turn, well, introspecting. That's what you do when you're scared. Might be a much better angle than I'm going to suggest. Yeah. What's that? Can we say it's from the Zikaron? Which part? The Torah says Yom right? It says Zikron Teruah, Yom Azikaron, yes. Right, so sound, isn't there something with that that brings you to Zikaron? Who's the Zikaron for, by the way? 
which is the pasuk by war, is that will be remembered in front of God. Right? Zichronot. When we read it as part of the Musaf on Rosh Hashanah, I can't tell you exactly. I mean, I, I can't because not, not only is it not appropriate for now, I can't fully explain to you what that means, that God remembers us or mentions us, but what I'm telling you is it's not so much us then. It's, it's whatever it means him. Now you might say there's something reciprocal. If he's, so to speak, quote unquote, remembering us, we need to be remembering him. All right, point taken. But again, Haram Bam's words over here are not so much about the zikaron. He's doing it from the shofar. Continues Arambam, just to finish the paragraph, hu ki'ilu hachana u'ptihaliyom hasom. That's fascinating in and of itself as well, separately. Besides Arambam, you want to know what Rosh Hashanah is? It's a preparation. It's a way of opening up ourselves to Yom HaTzom, which of course is Kippur. Kifima she'ata ro'em fursam b'masoret ha'uma he says, you'll find this in the traditions of the nation that we have this segment of time known as Aseret Yemei Teshubah from Rosh Hashanah until Kippur, those 10 days. Of course, that's not in the Torah, such a concept. How do you know Kippur is a day of Teshubah? Well, the Torah does describe that on Kippur, well, it's Lifnei Adonai Titaru, so maybe that. He does not mention that when he addresses Kippur in Mishneh Torah. In Mishneh Torah, how does he understand? Again, I'm sure he's reading Parashat HaHaremot, although he doesn't explicitly tell us this, where you read about Lifnei Adonai Titaru, that, so to speak, you'll be cleansed in front of God. Of what Harambam mentions, it's later in the Perik, it's not on the page in front of you, he says that that's the day that traditionally also not explicit in the Torah. We received the second Luchot. It's the day on which God said to Moshe, Salahdi kidvarech, I forgave you. And as a result, if it was a day of forgiveness, we forever commemorate it as a day in which we turn to God in some respect asking for forgiveness. Bottom line though from this paragraph, which is the paragraph addressing Rosh Hashanah, is that Rosh Hashanah is a day of repentance, not found in the Torah, certainly not explicitly, and it's linked up to, by means of that repentance, to Rosh Hashanah, and as a result, says Harambam, traditionally and appropriately, we have understood Rosh Hashanah as an entrance to a first stage to Kippur. If you take a look on the page, the supplementary sources page, that's what he's referring to in source number one, it's Peregimal of Hilchot Teshubah Halachad Dalit, that's where he talks about Shofar, he does, of course, have an entire segment known as Hilchot Shofar, but over here is where he talks about the reasoning that underlies the Shofar. Writes Arambam famously, Even though the reason we sound Shofar and Rosh Hashanah is because that's what it says in the Torah, Yom Teruah, Zichron Teruah, Remez Yeshbo, says the Harambam. Nonetheless, there's something, a hint that's latent and in turn there for us to be inspired by and changed. In other words, we don't fulfill the mitzvah with that purpose per se being contingent as to our performance, but we understand perhaps this as being a consequence of performance of the mitzvah. Kilomar, 
ורעורו ישנים משנתכם, והקיצו נדמים את הדמתכם, וחפשו במעשיכם, חזרו בתשובה, זכרו בורכם. In other words, awaken yourself, awaken yourself from your spiritual slumber. Get up from the sleep that you've been involved in. Uh, introspect, look into your deeds, go uh, change your ways. Remember God. אלו השוכחים את האמת בהבלי הזמן, שוגים כל שנתם באב ובריק, אשר לא יועיל ולא יעשיל. This is a reference to each of us who have wasted our time with those iniquities and vicissitudes of, or better words, vicissitudes of existence, the winds and spirits of society, the things that have distracted us. Habitu lenafshotechem, look inwardly, hetivu darkechem, change your actions, umaalalechem, ve'yazov kol echad mekem darko ra'av, umachshavto asher lo ra'toba, and in turn each of you should change your thoughts, your approaches, and your ways, making them better. Those are the famous words of Harambam. It very much does remind us of Kippur. It very much... Well, I can't say for everyone. It's not always the mindset when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, uh, generally speaking, and for good reason. For example, Rabbi David Abu Dharam has, uh, he cites from uh, from one of the Geonim, if I'm not mistaken, of Amram Gaon, he cites 10 different reasons as to, quote, why we, cite, why we say on the Shofar and Rosh Hashanah. I mean, one of the more famous reasons that is suggested, and it's right there, is uh, the same way you would coronate a king with trumpets and sounding of Shofar, so too, on Rosh Hashanah, that's Malchuyot, we're crowning God, giving him that crown in some respect, establishing or re-establishing his monarchy. But it's not Harambam's approach. Harambam's approach is the shofar's purpose is to inspire introspection and repentance. Again, he didn't, at least in my opinion, really reveal to us how that's done. It might be either, as A.B. suggested, it's going to be reminiscent of a battle cry, and in turn that inspires it. It might simply be experientially, just look at what the shofar does. Uh, might be, well, there might not be so much more to this other than, well, listen to the shrill cries of the shofar. Realize that does something to you, it jolts you in some way, shape, or form. Hard to prove because it's just a part of our culture at this point. It's supposed to inspire us. Uh, so what I would suggest, though, is that perhaps... Uh, the angle for appreciating these words of Harambam. Again, this is my own creative spin on this. Unfortunately, take it or leave it. Hopefully you'll be inspired in some respect, even if you don't take my claim as to explanation in Harambam. It goes like this. There is a debate uh, with regards to medieval commentators, Harambam versus others, and Harambam is clear about this, and it continues until today. There are debates with sourcing from Talmud and elsewhere with regards to what's the nature of this mitzvah of shofar. So, so what do you mean the nature? You just talked about the nature. Now, from a strict legal sense, is the mitzvah the hearing or is the mitzvah the sounding, the blowing of the shofar? So it sounds like something that you twist your finger with and you walk away with nothing changed. No, there are major ramifications. Harambam himself, in source number two, in his She'elot to Tishubot, in one of his responses, in Siman Nun Aleph, addressed this issue. It's written about elsewhere all the way back. And this isn't one of these 20th century, 21st century, newfangled, uh, pilpul type of questions. There are major ramifications. Harambam, for example, suggested in this Teshubah, in his response, he says if it was a mitzvah to sound the shofar, each of us would be mandated to do so. The fact that we don't each sound the shofar is the proof in and of itself that the mitzvah is to hear. There are other ramifications. Uh, Harambam's claim in his Mishneh Torah is... 
this is far-fetched, I admit that, but whereas if you were to steal a lulav, you can't fulfill the mitzvah with it, because the mitzvah is performed with the object physically, when it comes to shofar, you're not performing the mitzvah per se by means of the blowing, which is with a stolen object, but rather with the sound. And says Harambam, sound doesn't get stolen. Furthermore, Harambam writes in this tissue, but again, it's a stretch, we're not really going to find, but it's not so far off. Says Harambam, what if you sounded the shofar but didn't hear it? You'd fulfill the mitzvah. For those and many other reasons, the suggestion of Harambam and others is that the mitzvah of shofar is to hear it. That's what he writes explicitly. In this Tishubah, in an interesting way, he says that's why we say the Berachav, Lishmoa kol shofar, as opposed to Al Tikiat shofar. Lishmoa. So fundamentally, that's the performance of the mitzvah. So for me, that certainly links itself to what we established already. It certainly lends credence to Harambam's approach. If the point of this mitzvah in his minds, in his mind, is to inspire us to repentance through hearing the shofar, it makes a lot of sense that in his opinion, it's the hearing of the shofar. In other words, if it's coronation of God, for example, well then maybe it's the sounding of the shofar. The fact that it's the hearing and he's set on that and he mentions this in several places, okay, that lends credence to the fact that in turn, he could then suggest the hearing of the shofar is in turn inspiring, but it's still not enough. How does, and again, I might be out of my league, it might be a psychological question more than anything, how does that sound inspire us to Teshuvah? But I would suggest, uh, alternatively, instead of getting too psychological, but maybe it'll emerge as psychological, I would suggest that if we'll take a look at Harambam's words again, in Helek Aleph now of Moreh Nebuchim, in these two chapters, one after the other, Perek Mem Dalad and Perek Mem He, it might give us an angle, might give us an opening to dealing with this issue. Let me briefly recount what we've established and what we want to, want, want to determine. Harambam's words, in two places, in the Moreh and in Mishneh Torah, describe the Shofar, tell us that the purpose of the Shofar is to inspire repentance. That's his words. The question, how so? Where do you see that? Harambam is so sad on that, that that's his description of the day. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. And the Torah never says that. He seems to be deriving that from the very sounding of the shofar. Experientially, he says, historically, we have Aseret Emet Teshubah. Rosh Hashanah is so, as A.B. said, linked up to Kippur, his description of Mishneh Torah. It's Aseret Emet Teshubah. It's part of the Teshubah time period, which is inspired and brought forth through the sounding of the shofar. How so? What's the sounding of the shofar to us with regards to understanding how that brings me to Teshubah? So we began the conversation. We began it by focusing on the angle of Harambam that emphasizes the mitzvah is hearing. The mitzvah is not sounding, the mitzvah is hearing. There were the many who disagreed. Oftentimes it's quoted from Sheil Tot of Rabbi Haigaon that he maintained that it was Tikiat Shofar and others. Okay, but that's Harambam's position. These two chapters, now catching you, now that we're caught up to date, these two chapters are part of a long string of chapters in the first Chilek of Moreh Nebuchim, and I'll confess, and I may have mentioned this more than once, uh, when I once upon a time tried to learn Moreh Nebuchim on my own, actually with someone else, but we didn't know what we were doing, we weren't really educated in the direction or what's really happening, so we opened up to the beginning of Moreh Nebuchim. Now the first two chapters are certainly very juicy, exciting, the description of Gan Eden and the Etzadat and so on and so forth. Once you get past those two chapters, 
things seem to be like a dictionary of sorts. Harambam turns into an etymologist, if that's a word. He turns into what's the definition of these words in the Torah. And his purpose, and he just tells us this very clearly, his purpose is there are many words in the Torah which can skew our minds into inappropriate thoughts about God. Maybe thoughts that in his eyes are forbidden and certainly inappropriate and wrong. Many descriptions of, of the Torah uh, could, to simple-minded people, he describes it as such, bring them far from proper understanding of what godliness, divinity is all about. And so what he does is, and again, if you don't read it with a sensitive eye, if you don't have a broader perspective as to what we're doing over here, if you're not able to realize there's wisdom beyond just etymology and reading this chapter and linking it up to others and so forth, it is very dry and very boring, and that's what I said. People focus on the third halik instead of the first one. But nonetheless, if you do do it with the right sensitivity, with the breadth, with the ability to say, I'm going to figure this out down the line. I'll pay attention to themes. I'll see what's happening. So there's a lot to be found there. These are two such chapters. Perik Mem and Perik Mem talk about one after the other. Ayin, I, and in turn, sight. And of course, again, it's in reference to Primarily, God seeing and his eye, which we know he doesn't have, and to describe sight is even dangerous. And then the next one, it's an anthropomorphic you know, reference in the Torah. We have plenty of these, right? And then Perik Memheh refers to Shimi'ah, hearing. Very appropriate, two senses, one after the other, sight and hearing. It's interesting because I was just yesterday teaching a, he refers to one of these pesukim. In Perek Yodalf of Bimidbar, the description is the mitonenim. That's when Am Yisrael complains. And the pasuk says, am ki mitonenim ra Adonai. And so I paused. It's a young group of 15-year-old boys. And so I said, what does it mean? And so thankfully, I think we've got, I think Hanambam would be smirking at this point. I said, what ears? What do what God's ears look like? Oh, come on, Rabbi, you know that's not what it means. I was very, very pleased. It was very nice. No, they were quick to say, of course that's not what it means. And we looked in Targum Onkelos, and he skips that word. Targum, very often, will skip that. In other words, any of the anthropomorphic flourishes in the Torah that God got angered and his nose flared up and so forth, those are kind of his description of each of them on most occasions is to take us away from that. Very purposed, you know, the precursor to Harambam's type of fear and understanding of how we need to set people in their way. But going back a long time before, Onkelos is from the time of the Mishnah. Okay, regardless, what I'd like to do then is maybe get the angle at this point, is to focus on sight in the more and in turn to focus on hearing. And if Shofar is about hearing, I want to glean something from the description of sight and hearing as senses vis-a-vis the way the Torah refers to these words. That's the plan. It's not so much to focus on how Harambam attributes it to God, so focus on what do these words mean in the Torah, and in turn, well, I'll bring you from there. Here, Perek Bem Dalit, we're going to read most of it. Ayin, Hushem Meshutaf. I, I guess it's the easiest, oh, no, I can't say I. Ayin, Ayin Yod Nun, is a Shem Meshutaf. What's a Shem Meshutaf? Would you know it in the Michael Schwartz edition? It says on the bottom, hominum. It's a word which can, same word, means two or more than two different things. Hu shem en hamayim. Al en hamayim bamidbar. A spring is known as en hamayim. That's an ayin. 
Now, the linguists, I'm certain, certainly the mystics, will try to figure out what does water and springs have to do with eyes. Not our issue. The point is, Ayin in the Torah will be a reference to a spring. Number one. Vehu shem ha'ayin haro'ah. Furthermore, it's a reference to eyes that see. For example, Ayin tahadayin. Last year we talked about that pasuk in More Nebuchim, an eye for an eye, which we traditionally don't translate uh, literally. Hanambam in the More surprisingly told us we should. Vehu shem ha'ashgaha. Thirdly, says Harambam, it is the word or the name of surveillance, I think is the right word for hashgacha. I'm not certain the exact translation. Hashgacha means something that's being surveyed, something that's being watched over. So those are three. Now, Harambam talks a lot about hashgacha later in the Moreh. Hashgacha pratit is the word that many people use today. Harambam has plenty of conversation. Lest you think we could correct everyone's wrong thinking about hashgacha, we'd need to first figure out what he's talking about in hashgacha. But we can. We could go there as our next topic uh, in Moreh Nebuchim. Regardless, three things that Ayin will represent. A spring an actual eye, or the general general action or being, an essence of surveillance, watching over. Hu amar al-odot sim alav. Take him and put your eye on him. Doesn't mean look at him. Certainly doesn't mean put your spring on him. It means watch over him. sim alav. Al hashalazot, says Harambam further, based on this, this this hashala, the fact that the word can be used for more than thing. It's said about God in many places. The reference to the eyes being on it in reference to God is his surveillance, his ability to watch over in some way, shape, or form. A reference to the land of Israel. It's different than Egypt. Israel, the eyes of God, meaning there's reference to that last pasuk in reference to what's going on over there this is as we'll address when we talk about hashkaha which again is a fundamental very important issue to address not our issue now he's already telling you to start thinking about that continues Aramban and says when eyes are coupled with not just eyes. Look at the fact that each of these pesukim that we read in the second paragraph are just the eyes of God are on it. The eyes of God are on it. Eyes of, bring the eyes of God. What about when it says the eyes of God see? What's the reference then? This is when it's a reference to the eyes that see a fourth definition as to, well, I guess it's not a definition at this point, it's an expansion. Ayin haro'ah is a reference to knowledge. How does he know so? He says, God doesn't have senses. To have a sense means that you're impacted from something external. God impacts from himself to others, isn't impacted from others to him. In turn, if the Pasuk says that God in any place sees something, it means he is 
knowing of it. That describes a certain reciprocal relationship. Our knowledge of him, in turn, is his knowledge of us. A larger, longer philosophical conversation, which we touched on on one occasion, I think, in the more already. That, we'll finish the paragraph. That's what he wrote here with regards to I. Again, you're excited for the climax. No, no, he's just giving you definitions. It can't be a reference to an actual sensual experience. Anytime there's a sensual experience, something impacts you or the person who has that experience. But God, he does, he impacts, but is not impacted himself. So it can't be that he has senses. As I will later explain. For my purposes, for our purposes, I'd like to just notice the fact that Again, this homonym known as seeing or the eye has several references. One, the final one, knowledge. But in addition to knowledge, it was either an actual sight or alternatively surveillance. Now think for a moment about what that means, surveillance. The other usage of sight, right? Ayin could mean a spring. That's not an action. It can mean an actual sight. It can mean knowledge. Or it could mean, in the broader sense, surveillance, seeing it all. It means that you see it all. It's all in front of you. It's all revealed. That's what I'd like to notice for the moment here. I'm setting you up for something. Next. Next, Perek. Perek Memhe. Shama. Hu bitui meshutaf. Would you know it? Sight in the Torah, or eye in the Torah, rather, was a homonym. So too is Shama. How so? What does it mean? Sometimes it means to hear, maybe to listen. Other times it means to accept and to obey. When does it mean actually hearing? You can't mention the names of Avodah Zarah, can't be heard from your mouth. Literally, hearing. When Yosef's brothers came, the, the sound was heard in the house of Paro. Actually heard. That's often, that's common. You should know, just as much so as it meaning hearing with regards to the sensual experience, it also is the essence of accepting something. Accepting it, I hear what you say, I hear. You hear, you hear, means you're accepting, right? Whereas you see, you're kind of seeing it, said Harambam, in the sense that you got it all in front of you. Shama, we really could suffice with this, maybe we'll read a little bit more, but Shimia, in contrast, is quite, well, not the opposite, but a very different extreme. Surveillance, seeing, means it's all revealed. God's vision, so to speak, of existence, hashkaha, is that sight when all revealed surveillance. I'm watching, I have the cameras that are on at all times. There's nothing that's missing. Nothing got past me. Alternatively, shimia, in addition to meaning A, actually hearing, in addition to as Harambam continues and says, it has something to do with understanding as well. Like I said to you a moment ago, you hear what I'm saying? It could mean that I'm saying to you, you understand what I'm saying? True as well, even and certainly in the context of God. But it also means to accept. That's very different. What's that? I suppose so. But that's very different. To talk about shimia as acceptance, 
That's what the word means, as opposed to re'iyah, which means surveillance, the ability to see it all, is to describe two very different acceptances or realities in the way that I process or I understand what's going on around me. One is, whether true or not, I really get it all. That's re'iyah. The other is, shemi'ah, I get it, I understand what you're saying, I accept it, but I don't have the whole story. I'm not looking at it. I mean, lemashal, quite simply. If I look at you in a lit up room, I can really know what you look like. I can make out a lot about you. If I listen to you, I can imagine it. You have a deeper voice. Maybe it's a man. Maybe it's not. I, uh, it sounds youthful, and so on and so forth. But there's a, I can accept those realities based on what I'm hearing, but I don't truly have the whole, and yes, I say it literally, picture, because I don't see it. That's the... Maybe. I suppose it's similar. Everyone always focuses on, as the Gemara does in Shabbat, the order. Maybe, alternatively... Vinishma is the I'm willing to the, the general picture of what's taking on in terms of what you're saying is I'm accepting right. even though I don't have the full picture, right. which is interesting. Then it didn't need to be the order. Nishma in and of itself would have been okay, right? I heard the beginning of it, I accept. This sounds good. I I can trust the rest of the process. Not really, because it's just nishma. Shimia by definition is incomplete. Right, so it wouldn't it wouldn't be telling me that I have to, meaning it, the fact that there is two words. Now I said first. Right, right, got it, got it, got it. Tells you that that's how you're defining nishma. Got it. Okay, well, that being the case, I would in turn, here's the creative flair again. Everything we've spoken, I think, until now, are just the words of Harambam, with a few questions and a few comments in between. Here's the, here's the suggestion. It's a bit of a jump. It's a certain creative direction that I'd like to set forth, and it goes like this, and then we'll try to support it or, bol- or bolster it. If Shofar on Rosh Hashanah, if Rosh Hashanah, as Harambam described, it is the day which opens Teshubah and connects me to Kippur, well, by definition, the context, or rather the experience on that day, is going to be one which isn't fully revelatory, but rather one which is just opening my senses, only opening my mind. By definition, in turn, I'm suggesting the, the sense of hearing, says Harambam, I'm suggesting, when he looks at the Torah, what is Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah is a day of teruah. It's a day of hearing. Many other holidays have a lot that you look at. They have a lot that you touch. Rosh Hashanah is not about touching, not about looking. It in turn is about, well, not having the whole picture. By definition, in turn, I'm suggesting that is the beginning. That's the inspiration to develop more. By definition, I'm suggesting introspection begins by saying my curiosity is piqued. I have heard something, but I don't have the whole story. I now have a process ahead of me. I now have days and, uh, and, and, and important days ahead of me where I need to develop what that sound was about. It's a mysterious sound. It's a sound which has no connected meaning. There's nothing to look at, pinpoint, and say, I got the whole picture. You didn't get the whole picture. 
the shofar is not supposed to be that way. The shofar is instead supposed to be an instigation. The shofar is supposed to be a sound, and by definition, a sound is incomplete. A sound is the beginning of understanding, not the understanding itself. If Rosh Hashanah, it gives, it begins the context of a teshuvah direction. It begins the, for you, the opening of my mind as to well, what is that, why was that, and what does that mean to me? That's the suggestion. The truth is, getting a little spiritual for a moment or two, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, the rabbis in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, famously in source number three, have a dirasha. It's a pasuk in Sefer Tehilim, which says, Tik'u shofar hagenu. Now, skipping Peshat for the moment, not what the rabbis were purposed on focusing on over here. They interpret it as follows, Tikuba shofar, sound the shofar in the month of Kese, the Hag, the holiday of Kese. What does Kese mean? Something they read it as concealed, like Kisui, that's how they read it. Well, which month and which holiday takes place on the time of a month when, in their words, the moon is concealed? Would you know it? Very appropriately so. The 15th is when the moon is fully revealed. Uh, Sukkot, Pesach, completely revealed. The only holiday which takes place on the first of the month when the moon is concealed is Rosh Hashanah. Do you catch it though? Their description in their vision as to what that Pasuk means is something about the day, its characteristic is defined by the concealed nature fact that I don't see, the fact that in turn I have to focus on listening. My suggestion in turn is it's the day, says Harambam, of listening, of hearing, of not knowing the whole story, not seeing the whole story, but of my mind being open to it. The description of being awakened from my sleep means something inspired me, but I don't know what it is. I don't know. I don't have an answer, but I've begun that. Rosh Hashanah is the stepping stone to Kippur. It's not the day on which I actually mention all of my sins in a clear vision and description. Instead, I'm only opened in my mind at this point to the fact that there was a sound which I don't know what it means. And as a result, I'm beginning to think to myself, what does that mean to me? That is the seeds of introspection. In truth, listening Hearing, in contrast to sight, in this book on Sefer Devarim, published maybe two years ago by Rabbi Tamir Granot, a rabbi who lives in Israel, has a very interesting perspective on much of Sefer Devarim, but specifically with regards to, in our, in our context, our conversation, if I'm not mistaken, this passage, even though I didn't pick up on the whole passage, is talking about the Ben Soreru More. Lots of the words in the Ben Soreru More are about the fact that he didn't listen to his parents and he didn't listen, and then it concludes with Yisrael, they should listen and fear, and so forth. He points out that no less than 90 times in Sefer Devarim, more than any other book, is Shimia accentuated is listening and hearing the operative word and sense in the book. I'd like to, for a moment, develop one angle of that, you know, one one aspect of that, and then make a suggestion in turn as to why that's so. For example, Sefer Devarim. It's a Devarim. It's a it's a motion. Indeed, indeed. Sefer Devarim is the book of listening as opposed to sight. But it's very much, in my opinion, a Moshe Rabenu who will be passing on 
from the world, who was until that moment the revelatory remnant, the person who could speak to prophecy in terms of vision and clarity, and now speaking to the people and saying, with my passing, there's no longer that sort of revelation. You have to instead begin to listen carefully. You're just going to have the glimpses. You're just going to have the brief understandings. You're going to have the piticha, the hachana of Rosh Hashanah to Kippur. You're going to have the inspiration, which will in turn need to be determined, interpreted better yet by you. I say it all the time. It's the beginning of, of, of Moshe's reign as a leader outside of Egypt, where he supports them with water by hitting the rock and giving it to them in a direct fashion. He's told to do so in Ref- in Parashat Hukat, at the end of his leadership, he's told to speak, train the people to listen. They can't be sustained forever in this revelatory state of being. They need to be matured to be able to pick up on their own on the nuances of existence. On my ways, says God to Moshe. The Pasuk, for example, just to give you one angle with regards to this, it's a favorite, is the contrast between the telling of Ma'amad Har Sinai in Parashat Yitro to Parashat Vayet Hanan. I like this so much that I mentioned it on Tisha B'Av when I spoke. Um, in Perek Yotet and Perek Kaf of Shemot, the Pasuk describes, Description of God's presence or revelation at Har Sinai is kol ha'am. Now certainly they don't actually see God, but they're going to see something. It's about revelation by means of the eyes. There's going to be a full comprehension in some respect. Certainly not physical. Certainly not physical. Irrespective of what that really means in source number six, they see the sounds. Again, I don't need to. It certainly is prophetic description. There's no questioning that. But listen to the words. They see the sounds. And lastly, God turns to Moshe and tells B'nai, to tell B'nai Israel, Atem re'item, you saw, ki min hashamayim dibarti imachem. Fascinatingly, both times it's sound, which is through the means of sight. Ro'im etakolot, see the sounds, and you saw that I spoke to you from the mountain. Listen in contrast to the way it's presented in Parashat Vayet Hanan in source number seven. Look first and foremost at how many times in my bolded words there is Shemia, Kol, and so forth. Vayi Shom Achem Etakol Mitocha Hoshech Devarim As you heard the sound from the darkness. So it's the darkness. Vahar Bo'er Ba'esh. Onward. You should know, Vatomeru, you said, Hen Heranu Adonaiduen at Kevodovet Godlo, Veet Kolo Shamanu Mito Chaesh. We heard his sound from the fire. It's the complete opposite, at least in my opinion, of Yitro. Yitro was, we saw the sounds, prophetic description, saw the sounds. Over here, we heard the sight. We heard. The fire, fire is, I know there's cackling of the fire, but you talk about fire, it's about what you saw. We heard through the fire. And we in turn said, Again, we turn to Moshe, he remembers, and and so forth. So forth. I know there's a description 
description through and through in Sefer Devarim, and certainly in this passage, is about Shemia. Rabbi Granot points out, Shema Yisrael and so forth. The description of our acceptance, as Harambam said it, Shemia is by means of Shemia, that word. Our Avi Harari's suggestion is Shemia is most appropriate for Moshe at the end of his life to the people because, again, my explicit and revealed essence vis-a-vis God is will be gone, and as a result, your minds, your eyes need to be opened differently. It needs to happen now through your ears, so to speak. You need to accept and then expand. Now, all of this description... I, I believe, I'm suggesting, is the interpretation as well to Harambam's words again. Harambam told us that shofar is a call for introspection. It is the cry of repentance. We asked, how so? Again, the suggestion goes as follows. The cry of the shofar does not open understanding in its fullest to us. That, as a result, forces you and me to question to think further, to delve deeper. And as a result, introspection is born out of that. Rosh Hashanah is not a day on which we can have a full analysis, and we don't. We don't mention all of our sins. It's a day on which we are awakened, and we begin, that's the Bam's words, and we begin with, the hachana and pitiha for Kippur. The sound of the shofar, that shrill cry of the shofar, is the purpose, I'm suggesting in Harambam's words, to inspire us to, one word, think. That's what it's about. To think, to creatively determine, what does that mean? Where does that leave me? It's not in front of me. It's not spelled out for me. There's no Moshe Rabbeinu any longer. What does this mean to my life? The shemiah of the shofar, in short, because of the sense of hearing, as opposed to, and of course the depth of what that means, the sense of sight, is the inspiration for us to think, ponder, determine, remember God in the words of Harambam, look into our actions. Just to cap this off and to read from a favorite author of mine, his name is Leon Kass. Leon Kass wrote a book on Sefer Bereshit and on Sefer Shemot more recently. Um, his book on Bereshit has become a modern classic. Here's an individual who uh, taught in uh, Chicago University, but he's, his book is just latent with philosophical insight, with analytical perspectives. It's a beautiful book through and through. His Shemot book is, you couldn't match his Bereshit book, but it's wonderful as well. So his book, The Beginning of Wisdom, is on Bereshit, and the next one, Founding God's Nation, is on Shemot. Well, listen, and I don't even give you context, but I'll tell you briefly, source number eight is about the Akedah. And the Akedah, paying attention to the Ya'anashashamata and so forth, and Avraham was seeing, and then it's a reward for hearing, but not my issue. My issue is his description, philosophically or um, uh, sensually speaking. What do these senses mean? Sight gives one the impression, often mistaken, that one has full access to the meaning and being of the visible object. It might be a mistake, but when you see something, as Harambam described it, you have hashkaha, you have surveillance. You got it all. What you appear, what what you see appears to be all there is, and it beckons you to know it. You should know what I what I put in front of you. Look at me. Get get exactly who I am. 
but through sound and speech one can be confident only of the presence of the being without any clue regarding its totality, never mind its nature. Nature. We know through speech at most only so much as the speaker chooses to reveal to us, the rest being hidden from our perception. The shofar is the sound, is the hearing without giving a revelation. It's the very sense which represents the desire to know more, which forces us to dig deeper. Found in God's nation here in source number nine, through speech and hearing we learn at most only as much as the speaker chooses to reveal to us. The mystery of what is hidden is enough to inspire caution and even awe. Is that not the description of the shofar? It's awe-inspiring. Doesn't it give us a certain cautionary call? Source number 10, he has a few pages at the end. He has like this, uh, this few pages where he describes the difference between seeing and hearing. Yet, what we hear on page 96 never seems as complete as what we can see. Sounds, unlike sights, are not images or likenesses of any originals. They do not give us beings or essences. They merely announce presences because the significance of sound, and especially of speech or music, is disclosed only through and over time. Never all at once. It's the period from Rosh Hashanah until Kippur. It begins with the sound on Rosh Hashanah, and you'll have to keep listening for it. Of course, not in the physical sense. It's a physical sense which inspires us to a uh, intellectual, to a psychological uh, uh, direction. Never all at once, the hearer must be brought to continuing attention to receive the sequence of sounds necessary for whatever intelligibility can be conveyed. The contingency of sound and speech, not under our command, Make us all ears. How cute. Makes us all ears. We have to listen carefully. We must strain to get what might come next. In short, each of these descriptions, each of these examples, I hope, bringing us back first to Harambam's description in, Peri, in Chilek Aleph of the More, those two chapters, one after the other, where he first described sight and then described hearing. The difference between the two, one being, again, several interpretations, both representing possi- po- the possibility of knowledge. To see something and to hear something means to know it, but a different type of knowledge. Knowledge on the one hand is hashgaha, full knowledge. Maybe mistaken, not with God, maybe with me and you, mistaken, but our mind gets certain, to a certain extent closed off. You gave it to me in front of me, I can't see it any differently. Alternatively, hearing is an acceptance. I accept. I accept means there's a beginning here. You said that to me, I accept. Doesn't mean that I've stopped. There's so much more to develop. We then scale that backwards to the words of Harambam in the Moreh, as well as in Perikim al Teshubah, where he describes the Shofar, quite simply as a mitzvah, which is, we're suggesting in its full simplicity, simplicity to hear, to listen. The very sense of listening, the very experience of listening is an invitation to grow. It's an invitation to develop further. It is, as Harambam describes it, a petihavehachana. It is for us an eye-opening, mind-opening experience, which says to us, what are you hearing? Just asking that question, just pondering, just wondering, just delving into the inner core of ourselves to determine what does that sound mean to us? That is Teshubah, or at the very least the seeds, the beginnings of Teshubah itself. I would suggest in turn that the experience of hearing the Shofar and Rosh Hashanah is the experience of the beginning of Teshubah itself. Mm-hmm.